This is part three of a three-part podcast. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land but don't know where to start? Do you have a world-changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul conversation today at permies.com slash consult. Permies.com slash consult. Yeah. So the, the, I think the subtext of what you just said is that if you were to get a colony with a swarm trap, it would be worth 20 times more than a purchased colony. Yeah, if it has good genetics. And the the hard part about catching bees in swarm traps is if that you're near commercial beekeepers, you, you have a good chance of catching swarms from um, their hives. And their hives might have decent genetics. Um, the hive might be doing really good, and that's why it's swarming. But there's also the hives that swarm to get away from disease. And there's... There's just so many other factors. So you kind of want to put your swarm traps out in the wilderness and, uh, or at least away from commercial beekeepers. Well, that's, that's hard to do when you live near people. Um, and it's definitely the better way to go if you're not treating the ones that aren't going to survive on their own or are going to die. And you, you're, um, yeah, you're going to lose those genetics anyway. But if you are in a more natural area or close to wilderness, you do have a higher chance of catching a wild swarm. And, um, you know, swarms have about 50% chance of survival their first year. So even if you start with good genetics and you don't intervene at all, you really only have a 50% chance of survival. And that's regardless if they're good genetics or not. Um, but if you're looking to keep bees in the long term, it's it's a good way to get started. And I have had multiple people that I've met tell me that that's how they got started. And I um, tried doing that and was very unsuccessful. Um, I don't know if part of it was just there's too many um, commercial beekeepers in the area. There's so few wild hives or they're so um, spread out. I um I was really gung ho on catching um some wild swarms and it, it was just difficult and me being impatient I just decided to go the route that other people have gone which is get bees and replace the genetics and that I think is a more sure way of getting going or at least knowing that you're going to start with good genetics um especially to the novice because bee so the novice bees are bees, right? They're honeybees. They they all look and seem the same. To someone who's more of an expert, you can actually tell the differences in behaviors of bees when you just open a hive, how they move on the comb, um, how they uh, uncap brood, and how they pull brood that's infected, all these different things that can kind of signal to you that they are um, – or better 
they have more genetic diversity or they have the traits that you're looking for. Um, There's also the fact that they swarm um, more frequently than the commercially kept bees. So um, when you're beginner and you're just looking at bees, you, you're not going to notice these little details and you can like take samples of your bees and send them off to a lab and have like the genetic, genetics analyzed um but that's a, it's a lot of work and costly the there are little tricks um that will help you um kind of realize or or decide how how good your bees are genetically um my my thing <laughs> or what's obvious to me when i open hives um, that are of my treatment free stock versus the treated bees is just their defensiveness, their ability to uh, defend their colony, which I can't prove this. And it's just like a thought in my head, but I feel like if they're defending themselves internally from parasites, they're also defending themselves externally really well from intruders. So they are more. Uh, defensive. Most people want to use the term aggressive, but they're not like out there looking to sting people. But once you mess with their hive, um, you can tell like there's a difference genetically. They're much more defensive. And so that's one way I can tell. Now it's, it's not always that easy. Like during a honey flow, you can't tell the difference because they're all so happy. But when they're a little on edge, when there's no honey flow, like what we call the dearth, um, or if there's a change in weather, you can tell pretty quickly the difference um, between the treatment-free bees and the uh, treated bees. And, and partly that's because um, the commercially kept bees have been bred for their docility. Um, D. Lusby called them the butterfly beekeepers because <laughs> the bees didn't really sting. You know, they just land on you. And and some of those actually can be very um, defensive um, as well. But um, that's uh, that's just one of the obvious differences to me. And now I've heard of people, and especially queen breeders, like, oh, I know, I don't keep any um, of those, you know, defensive colonies in my hives. And, like, we replace those really quickly. But in my experience with the VSH queens – they are more defensive than my uh, my treated colonies that have been bred for hundreds of thousands of years to be easy to work. So that's a that's something that I don't think people talk about or um, really want to talk about because it's like the reality. If you're going to deal with bees and you want to go the treatment free route, um, be prepared for um, uh the more defensive honeybees, especially when you're working them. And there's other factors as well. There's the size of the colony. Basically, the bigger it gets, the more defensive it gets. And that's true whether they're um, treatment-free VSH bees or not. Um, there's also other environmental factors like weather changes. There's how often you inspect the hive. There's, you know, little things like if the hive is getting messed by um, skunks every night. They're just going to be a more on edge. There's also a big component of defensiveness is actually hybrid 
uh, the hybridization of honeybees. So when they start intermixing, you naturally get more defensive honeybees. And that's, it's pretty easy to see when you start mixing breeds. Um, so it, those are just all different factors that the newbie is going to have no clue about and not realize until they either do some research or get some more experience. So most people who want to do treatment-free beekeeping, and you can go on the Facebook page and or the treatment-free beekeepers Facebook group and see post after post of people who just haven't done the research and they're doing everything wrong and no one's really wanting to tell them what to do right because there's so many different opinions um, that it, it's just, it's, so comical to me and like I can't even go on there because if I say something the moderator is going to you can't you can't say that everything and and there's some truth to that like beekeeping is um regional it's local like everything is different based on where you live so um what works for one person might not work for another but from what I've seen is you know People who have started from swarms and got good genetics from that, they did their research first. And they also probably lived in the Midwest or the East um, or the Southwest, somewhere where there's a lot of wild, feral honeybee colonies. And then most people who get started just buying packages, thinking they're going treatment-free, they're like, where I was at in 2013, just like, oh, some will survive. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, they might survive a year. They'll survive a year, maybe 18 months, and then all of a sudden they all die, and you're like, oh, that really didn't work. Um, so, yeah, I think if you're gung-ho on getting bees and and making money off of it, yeah, you, you know, setting out swarm traps in Montana, it's a little more challenging. Um, if If you just want bees... And you're, you're not really looking to make money off the honey. Yeah, you want the honey, but you're mostly just, you know, trying to add it into your system. Yeah, just start catching swarms and like, don't treat. And then, you know, the good genetics will eventually prevail and show themselves. And then you, that's when you just start making splits or nukes or, um, doing whatever you want, however you want to make your increases out of your favorite hives. So the moral of the story is genetics. Boy, genetics make a big difference. And if we're going to be keen on permaculture and we want to go treatment tree, then, uh, uh, genetics are everything. And the best chance of getting good genetics is going to be through swarm traps. And, uh, now it's also possible that you might be able to find people who have a swarm, like, oh, look. A swarm. And, and I know that over in, uh, Cascadia, so, you know, uh, Portland, Seattle area, that's mm-hmm. going to happen more often. And, and it's like, but oh, yeah. around here, it probably isn't going to happen very often that somebody notices a swarm enough that you can set up a network to come and harvest those swarms. But, uh, right. so, so really the swarm trap is going to be your best bet, especially if you're near a wilderness area or the or a forest service land or something like that, you're way up there, which right. we are. And so it's a gamble, though, 
because we could set out 20 swarm traps and it could be several years until we get one swarm. Yeah, that's true. There are, there are tricks. There's swarm lures, which is, uh, usually made of lemongrass, but there's a pheromone that smells a lot like lemongrass, um, that you can purchase. Um, you can harvest from, um, queens, putting queens in alcohol. There, uh, you can rub propolis or beeswax on the hive and those scents will draw the scout bees. Um, there's also, you know, placement of them. You know, you want to be up off the ground, um, you know, 10, 20 feet off the ground, preferably. Um, they will move into a swarm trap on the ground though. Um, you, you can do all those different tricks. And even if you do catch a swarm and you're not really sure about the genetics, let's say you do have um, commercial beekeepers in your area, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe you're certain that that's where the swarm came from. Well, you can start out breeding your colony, even if you don't like the genetics, and basically raising new queens. The thing is, if you're going to try to get um, new genetics from more wild hives, you're going to have to move your your hive away from those hives um, so that you can get in the area where there's more wild drones because a queen mates with multiple drones. So even though you can start with a good queen, you can lose your genetics if you start breeding in an area that it's just commercial beekeepers. So you really want to isolate yourself and it's something that, you know, a lot of people think about when they're going treatment free. It's like, okay, I've got some bees. I want to start raising my own queens. I need to move away from where I'm at in order to raise new queens so I don't get these commercial drones mating with my queens. Well, if you start with smaller bees or naturally sized bees, I should say, I think there's less intermixing of the drones naturally. The smaller natural sized bees tend to fly faster. So those big fat drones from the commercial colonies can't fly as fast. And your, <laughs> um, your, uh, cute little treatment free queen is going to fly a lot faster. And only the bees that are going to catch her or the drones that are going to catch her are going to be those smaller drones. So there's, there's definitely like a natural separation that you observe just based in like the biology of the bees. But you could start with not so great genetics and just start raising a lot of queens by putting yourself in an area where you know there's a lot of uh, wild honeybees and start getting those genetics through basically the drones. You don't even have to catch them. You just have to get them to um, mate with your daughters, your virgin queens. So you can really do that. I I struggled with that because I'm a commercial beekeeper and I want to do things on a scale that um, is efficient, right? So when I, when I did situations like that where I put a bunch of queens out in an area without commercial bees, um, my success rate was really low. It was like 50% of those queens were made up. And then only about 50% of those queens would survive. So it was like 25% less or, or less of success. And, um, and even, even then, um, yeah, yeah, it just, 
it was hard. The, the genetics aren't there. So it's, it's a lot of work. Um, you can do it though. And I know other people have done it. And so you would want to place possible. You would want to place your treatment free hives as far into the wilderness as you can. Right. And so that way it'll, it'll become better and better and better at being treatment free as the decades pass. Um, right. Whereas if you've got a few hives that are treatment free with good genetics, but it's near uh, hives that are being treated, then eventually your treatment-free attempt could fizzle. Or weaken, yeah. Yeah. And so and, and yeah. when you were here for the PDJ, you made three swarm traps so that right. we can start down this road of of getting a swarm. Because basically to to travel a permaculture path with with honey it's it is it is a a rich space like if you're gonna get away from all the treatments and go treatment free it's a it's a big deal it's a, there's a lot to it uh, step one locate all your stuff like away from all the other uh, uh, commercial bee operations and closer to the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And right. so uh, you've been out here many times, Jacob. In fact, I think you were the first person to stay the night up at Wheaton Labs. Didn't you stay in one of the teepees we set up? Um, Like when we first put it up, I think I'd owned the land for like days. <laughs> Something like uh, that. I don't, I don't think I stayed the night, but I do remember <laughs> the TV. I, I wanted to stay there, but, um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I remember those first days quite well. Um, but are we close enough? Yeah. Are we, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's no, probably you're pretty you're good. Great, you're in a great spot because you are on the edge of the wilderness and you're in the national forest and there's so many trees. There's a lot of diversity, so there are going to be wild honeybees. Um, you know, there, I know there are commercial bees not too far away from you. Um, but that, that shouldn't, um, really affect the fact that you're, you do have a good potential of catching a wild swarm. I'd say, um, a lot better than most places in Montana. I think once you get into the prairie side of the divide, just like you basically have to be on river bottom where there's cottonwood trees um, to find wild hives out there. Um, but where you're at, there's, yeah, there's a lot of old trees, there's rocks, you know, bees actually do nest in the cliff faces and hollow rocks out in the, in Western Montana. So yeah, you've got, you've got a really good chance. I think if you set up multiple swarm traps and add lure too, that's yeah. going to, that's going to greatly inc- increase your um, ability to catch swarms. And even though I know your base is near uh, farms and other beekeepers, you know, the lab is, is tucked in the mount. It's in the mountains. Yeah, I, and I know there's wild colonies out there. I think the biggest issue is 
um, there's a lot of options for them out there because there are there's so many trees out there. So I think hanging multiple traps and then baiting them and baiting them at the right time, which for you is going to be May through June, um, is going to be, you know, the maybe the biggest factor because that that smell just really brings brings them in um, and gets them to check. Check it out, especially with a new box like the ones we made. Like, uh, you, they don't really like new wood. They like old wood. So I, if I was to have my way and make a bunch of swarm traps, I'd try to use like some wood that's been sitting out for a while. Um, but regardless, like once you throw that swarm trap lure in there, um, you're gonna, you're gonna do a lot better. Okay. So I think you, You've got a great potential, um, you know, and there's a lot of diversity there. There's, there's definitely wild colonies. Now they're just, they're, I think they're so spread out in Montana, partly because it's a drier climate, uh, shorter growing season. Um, so there's just not tons of swarms like you'll see in other parts of the country where there are longer growing seasons more honey flows, warmer climate. It's just, it's a little more difficult to survive in Montana. So they're, they're out there just like the swarms aren't as plentiful as you might find in other parts of the country. But yeah, I think there's a good chance that we could catch some swarms on your property. So, uh, any notes about the swarm traps that you built at the PTJ, uh, last Mm -hmm. summer? Um, yeah, I had some ideas about the design. Um, you know, I put lip on the back, um, so you could drill or fasten them to a tree, like up in the tree, preferably, like I was saying, 10 to 20 feet off the ground. And so that, um, it's secure. The wind isn't going to tear them down or blow them around. And then if bees do move in, all you have to do is, zip, pull it out, and then haul it away. And then I put one side kind of like a door. And Well, it's screwed in, but if uh, if these move in, you can just take off the one side and then kind of have this side view of the combs, which would make it nice and easy to remove them, cut them out, and keep them as whole as possible. Um, that's why I made them tall and narrow versus wide, is um just less combs, taller combs, and that'd be um hopefully easier to m- remove because bees, you know, they draw nice straight combs most of the time, but a lot of times they like doing things diagonally and putting a lot of brace comb, uh, and so it kind of makes removing wild combs a little more difficult. So that's kind of why I went with the tall, narrow, and and deeper design how often um, do you check swarm traps um i mean personally me <laughs> like not often enough but um i, would I mean say if they've built during, some tall comb that's gonna take a while um yeah it, it depends on the honey flow and then during swarm season it they're gonna build combs very fast right uh the swarm builds comb faster than any other state of 
honeybees because before they leave the colony, they just fill up on honey because they're going to a spot where they're not going to have reserves. So they basically bring it with them. And because they gorge themselves on honey or nectar before they leave, when they finally settle down, all their wax glands are just producing to the max. So they can build, they can move into a space and build 60, 70% of the comb that they're going to put in that space within a week or two, like almost immediately. And it's pretty amazing. Um, so you don't want to let them sit too long. The one thing about old comb is that it is much easier to deal with. Fresh comb is more soft, especially if it's warm out. It's, um, it's brittle if it's cold. When, uh, combs have been used over and over again, they develop, um, strength. Part of that is when the bees lay, um, brood in the comb, some of that wax or the paper from their cocoon gets left in the cell and they clean out most of it, but a little bit, um, stays in there. So the older the comb, the more sturdy it is. So when you get a fresh colony and, um, it's all brand new comb, it's kind of hard to manipulate the comb and move it out of that space into your frames or your other hive without it just like folding over, falling apart, honey just like tearing out and just creating a mess. Um, so the earlier you catch the swarm and transfer it to where you want it, the better, okay. right? Um, that's why a lot of people like using old boxes as swarm traps because it's an easy transition. They put the frames right in there if they have frames so that they start just building in the frames. They use old combs because the actual old combs will draw in scout bees just because of the scent. Like, oh, there's there was a hive in here. Oh, we can move in here. It's like ready to go, fully furnished home. Hi, this is Mark. Sometimes talking to a friend or family member about permaculture can be met with a blank stare if it's all new to them. A great way to explain some of it can be over a card game using permaculture playing cards, which each have interesting facts with quality illustrations and descriptions. A wide range of people, places, and things, all related to permaculture, can be found on the permaculture playing cards at richsoil.com forward slash cards. So... If you are baiting your swarm traps, and let's say you hang them in April or May, and you are really gung-ho on getting your swarms um, and transferring them to a different hive, I would say check weekly and even apply the swarm lure um weekly or every two weeks because you really have a short window where you're going to catch swarms that are going to be viable after june like even if you catch a swarm in july it's like it's very um risky in terms of whether or not they're going to be able to build and gain enough honey stores to make it through winter especially montana winter so i would say you know put them in spots where if you can, put them in spots where you're naturally going to be in that area often. Like you're going to drive by, or you're going to walk by it. A lot of people put them on their deck because they've got that nice elevated platform and it simulates like being up in a tree for the bees. And then they're, you know, seeing it every day. They watch this um, 
uh, scout bees come and visit for days at a time and then go ahead, you know, then all of a sudden, oh, today they're moving in. So, you know, high traffic areas are great. If you're going to put them far away, like in like the outer edges of your property, I would, I'd make a point to check them weekly or every two weeks at a minimum if you can. And there's no, there's no real harm on just like forgetting about it, but, um, yeah, you'll, you'll be able to deal with transferring the bees to your hive a lot easier, more easily if you get them and there's only a couple little, um, tomes started okay. versus they built out the whole thing and put a <laughs> bunch of honey in there and, and the combs are so fragile that they just start falling apart the minute you try to um, transfer them. So the, the moral of the story here is uh, we've, we now have three swarm traps and we, we need to put them out um, mm. April ish or so. And, yeah. uh, uh, and then start checking them every week or two. To see if we we got anything, but the probability is a little bit slim. Uh, but if we do, probability that the genetics is good is pretty high. So I would I'd think so, yeah. And then two other projects: horizontal log hive and vertical mm-hmm. log hive. You those are so for the PTJ last year, you built the swarm traps and you built these two log hives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the log hive, the horizontal log hive, kind of inspired by what they call the Kenyan top bar hive, where it's basically a hollowed log, or you can make a box, sloped sides, and, um, you know, the bees build and move horizontally along the combs. And, you know, it's a very low-budget low-tech hive. Um, we didn't do top bars in your log hive. I've been trying to um, merge it kind of with what uh, another treatment for you beekeeper has been calling his, uh, you know, his modified worry hive. Worry is a French beekeeper who designed a different, more square box type of hive, and then um, just had a little different approach about how to harvest from them. So Sam Comfort started using bamboo skewers instead of top bars, and his mainly I think because they're cheap. Uh, the bees really build nice straight combs off of them really easily, and then um, pretty easy to manipulate. So that's why I went with the bamboo skewers. Um, making a bunch of top bars for that hive, it would be just a lot of time on the table saw, which I'm not opposed to, um, but I think it's a little unnecessary. So it's just pretty simple. Just had a log, cut a slice off the top for the lid, um, hollowed it out with, you know, not square vertical sides, but the angled sides that you'll see in a top bar hive. And then just um, put markers for where the um, skewers should be lined up so they have a natural spacing of comb, which is about one and a quarter inches. And then to keep those 
fees that might be in there, um, move in there, be put in there from attaching to the lid when you open it. I throw, I threw some beeswax cloth, like cloth soaked in beeswax. So it's kind of like a fabric inner cover, which you see people doing all around the world in different situations. So that when you open the hive, it's not all attached to the lid and then you just peel that wax cloth back and then you can um, start manipulating the combs off those um, bamboo skewers. Okay. Very simple, very easy to make. Because the bees are going to probably try to seal micro gaps with a little bit of propolis, but the oh, wax, de- the propolis definitely. doesn't stick to the wax, the wax fabric very well. Um, no, not to the point that it will rip the comb when you try to peel the wax back. It'll, it'll stick a little bit, but it, you know, you just pull it or s- slowly pull it back and it, um, should work pretty, pretty well. Um, what are your notes yeah. about the vertical log hive? Um, yeah, so the vertical log hive is basically the worry hive, but in a log, um, cut into sections so that you can inspect the hive, you can swap, although I don't know that I did such a perfect job on cutting <laughs> the rounds, um, that you could swap them, like top to bottom. Um, but, but you can work the hive similar to a worry hive has just a little round for a cap can pull that off. Um, I think we even put notches to hold the skewers and we put some of the old foundation from the hive that you had there onto the skewers to kind of give them little starter strips. Um, but yeah, very, very also low budget, low tech, simple style. Um, at first I was thinking round, a round cavity inside. Um, but knowing how bees build comb, I figured, well, the, the outside, those combs are going to be really fat. They use up the space or they're going to build comb right on the sides of the wall of the log. So I just went with the square, um, cavity which was easy to cut with a chainsaw and would make for very easy inspections of the hive. They should build pretty nice straight combs without too many side attachments, should be pretty easy to inspect or harvest honey from. Um, I I think vertical is better for cold winters because I think bees are able to utilize the heat that they're generating in the winter to move up into honey. And that's how they really store honey is they store honey not only away from the entrance, but also top down. So it gives them almost like an insulative honey cap. So I think overwintering is easier for the bees um, in a vertical situation, especially in Montana, because if they've got lots of honey stores and the bees are down below it, that honey is warmed by the gen- generating heat of the hive and they can move up into it. Whereas you start asking a hive to move horizontally in winter, um, they can do it if there's enough bees, but if they're, you know, a little short on bees or isn't as large of a colony, um, it's, they don't get to utilize that, um, heat generation to move into the honey. They kind of have to move 
shift sideways. So it'll, it'd be inter, interesting to see if there's any difference in winter's um, survival. But um, if a hive is big and healthy and strong, has a lot of honey, they will be able to move horizontally. I just like to think, you know, try to make it a little easier on them because winters are so hard. But the horizontal is nice for people who don't want to lift boxes of honey or, in this case, rounds, like, full of honey. Like, there's no lifting other than just um, the individual combs, even when you're harvesting. So that is nice for um, for the beekeeper. So there's definitely that um, benefit over the vertical hive. It's like, oh, you got this you know, block of honey on top and you got to take it off and you could move them like cone by cone. It's just, it's just more back work, which, um, that's what most beekeeping is for me, just lifting a bunch of stuff. So those are like the pros and cons of each style. Awesome. All right. So now going back to everybody, did you guys see something happening at the PTJ that was not one of your projects that you guys, one of you thought was cool or worth, worth talking about right now? Maybe, maybe, uh, uh, something that you look forward to seeing in the movie or, or something like that. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed I, watching that your, your beehives come together. Yes, I agree. It was really neat coming out to see what you were doing and just seeing that you were just taking a regular log and turning it into a home. <laughs> it was so clever the way you put it together with the little the little pieces of wood going through there. and It was so neat. I'm excited to see it get filled with, with honey. Yeah. A lot yeah, of, I mean, just piggybacking off other people, really. Austin stuff did not get filmed enough either. He did so many projects, uh, sourdough, kimchi, drying stuff. Uh, just He just kept going every day, and I would just slip through, observe for a few minutes, and come through going, this is great to know how he's doing this stuff. The, the beehives were kind of cool, too. I wish we'd had bigger power tools for you. You did an awful lot of just <laughs> scrape and dig kind of work to get the logs hollowed out. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't hard. Um, it, it was more fun than anything. Yeah. I also, yeah, I thought there's a lot of cool stuff going on that I didn't get to really poke in and check out. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it all on the video. <laughs> um, <laughs> when it let's comes combine together. The, let's combine the, uh, big log picnic table with swarm traps. It should make it interesting for people to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think one of the things about the permaculture technology jamboree is that we're very artifact based and we discourage daytime classroom stuff. We, uh, we allow classroom stuff in the evenings. Um, but it kind of seems like the big thing is, is that when it comes, if, if people want to learn more, about honeybees or if people want to learn more about Jim's community or if people want to learn more about, uh, Samantha's working with animals. It's at the meals. 
So when you guys, so I kind of feel like the design of the entire event is that we've got, you know, three meals a day and everybody sits down and we force everybody to stop working. We don't allow people to work through meals. Ernie Wisner used to try to work through meals and that's when we finally came to the <laughs> point of like, stop. No, no, no. Uh, not only are you making way too much noise and ruining it for the rest of us, because <laughs> he's like got a grinder on a barrel. <laughs> and it's like, not only that, but at the same time, everybody wants to talk to you. So go get some food, sit down, and let people talk to you. So my guess is, I in fact, uh, when you guys sat down for a meal, you were swamped with people wanting to talk to you about all kinds of different things. This, a simple yes would yes. suffice. Yes. Yeah, it was really fun to get to chat with everybody. And, you know, you kind of want to go deeper on everything and then hear yeah. about the other projects that are happening because we're the instructors. We don't get to go play with the other instructors. So yeah. you get to hear about what everybody's doing. <laughs> And then you go into the food line and there's one piece of broccoli left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try to make more food next time. That's I'm wondering right. if, if like the instructors should have forced breaks <laughs> where they like are forced to go check out some of the other, what the other instructors are doing, kind of like forced um, lunch times. Like, okay, no, you're, you're actually scheduled to not be working on your project right now. You should go <laughs> check out something else. I know there was a lot of that. There was a lot of instructors. There was. there was a lot of instructors going around to other people's stuff. They had to go see and go look. And, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I know that when I made my rounds, I would find, you know, uh, uh, like Jim over there with the kiln, you know, or something. Uh, I would find mud over with this other project. I mean, I think that was going on quite a lot. And, uh, I don't think it's because a lot of times what happens is, is that like Jim will be like building the roundwood picnic table, but then everybody that's working on it is hitting a good pace. They're doing good and they know what needs to be done next. And so then, Jim will take off for an hour and and go look at other stuff, then come back. So I think okay. that's totally great. Um, I think there's lots and lots and lots of that. I know uh, along those lines, so we were just talking about Samantha being the cook, but Samantha was the cook for the uh, uh, permaculture design course. And so now we're talking about the permaculture technology jamboree, and then Samantha was an instructor, and the uh the cook for the permaculture technology jamboree was Christine and i know she was out there for a lot of the event doing stuff um and she taught people how to do axe throwing i remember that uh i imagine she taught people other things too but she did this in addition to being the cook which i totally encourage it's totally great I guess the thing is, is that not a forced thing, but there is a natural thing that's happening. We're not, you know, chaining people to the, to their projects. Like, you cannot leave. That's true. I think everybody, I think all the instructors got a chance to go look at all the other stuff. And then of course, at the meals, you get to kind of sit down and really talk about, you know, the details that kind of don't lend themselves well to during the build. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I think that went 
I think that went really well. The meals, the meals really helped to tie all the pieces together. So everybody gets to visit. All I'm thinking is, is like, here we are doing this podcast and we're go, we're talking in great length about swarm stuff. And it's like, why should you care? You can just go buy it. Just go buy it. And it's like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. There's a very good reason why you want to try and capture that swarm. And so I, I think, I think that comes. So during, while you're building the swarm traps, it doesn't come up so often because you're kind of talking about, okay, I'm measuring this and I'm put a slope on the lid. I'm going to, you know, add an extra bit of backing so it's more stable when it's attached to the tree. I'm going to, so there's all these little details about the swarm trap that you're focused on. And you might say, well, we want to do it like this because the bees are a little bit like that. And it's, but then at the, at the tables, when you could talk about genetics and why genetics are so important and why genetics makes such a big difference when it comes to honeybees mm-hmm. and why that makes it so that the swarm trap is actually like a hundred times more valuable than it looks because it looks pretty humble. And on top <laughs> of that, it's like you're going to need 20. To capture one swarm. That's and what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, it's, uh, you know, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's, it, it's, uh, cause it, cause you'd need that. To, otherwise you could piss away 10, 15 years of your life trying to get that, those purchase <laughs> colonies to work out for you. Whereas, mm. you know, one, you know, you capture one swarm a year. For uh, five years, you're doing great. You're doing way better than if you uh, went. Mm-hmm. So, and I kind of feel like the meals is the time we would talk about these sorts of details and all kinds of other topics, all this bric-a-brac that makes up permaculture. And in the movie, I saw a clip where Samantha is talking about how when you're at the PTJ, you can have conversations that you kind of can't have anywhere else. And rather, rather than trying to convince somebody of what they're clearly seeing as crazy, it's like here you are with 50 other people who have the same brand of crazy and the conversation begins where at a at a place that you can't have other places like like the conversation begins with i want i want i don't want to buy a colony i want to capture a swarm that's where the conversation can begin with permaculture people but when you're in a non permaculture environment and you're talking about honeybees the swarm seems stupid and it's like so <laughs> so the the conversation begins with the swarm and that's and then it and it grows from there but okay so Samantha what was the thing that you said in the video you you said it so eloquently well you know a lot of times when i'm talking to people in my normal life i'm teaching them and when i was at the ptj i was learning i was learning from all you guys cuz you're all way beyond me with the things that you do and you can you can go farther with any with any conversation, partly because people are a little bit prepped for it. They're not they're expecting it to be cool instead of expecting it to be a little over the top and a little crazy. 
And the other thing with permaculture is a lot of times if you want the best, you have to make it for yourself. Like you can't buy the food. The food that I make, I can't, I can't buy it. I can produce it myself. The level and the quality, it, you kind of got to learn how to build it. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to buy it. You're not going to get somebody to make you a fadi. You're going to have to make it yourself or a rocket mass heater or an amazing beehive or all the things that Jim does. You have to learn it. And if you go out to Wheaton Labs, you can learn it what kind of whatever you want in a couple weeks. And then That's go people. home and, yeah, and have the people that you can that you can rely on and know that it's not just you out on your own <laughs> in the world being crazy, but there's all these other amazing people that want to do it too, and we get to do it together. Yeah. Yeah, I learned a lot at lunchtime listening to other instructors or the participants like every even the participants had a wealth of information of things that they were doing and they might not have been teaching but it was like they were teaching um at lunch everyone who was who cared to listen it was just it was wonderful I, <laughs> yeah uh wish wish I had been able to stay the full time I, I think a thing that somebody once suggested is, is, uh, and in fact, I think I've heard this suggestion five or six times, is that for a PDC or for the PDJ or the skip events, that, um, we need to record, uh, have some kind of recording device at every table, you know, mm. and that those could be, I mean, yeah. if you think about it, you just said a recording device at every table, then you gather them up at the end of the day, and then there you've got two years worth of podcasts right there. Just yeah. these conversations, you know? Uh, Definitely. It's, it's, uh, but I think for a lot of this stuff, we're trying to figure it out. And for two weeks, for two, for two weeks, it's like our ability to figure out what we want to do is accelerated by a factor of 50. Yeah. Partly, partly because instead <laughs> of like wherever we live and we go and we visit with our neighbors or our friends and most of their advice is what you're doing is crazy. Um, it won't work that way. That's impossible. That's stupid. Um, you know, it's another one of your harebrained schemes. Uh, stuff why would like you want to live that way? Yeah, people always ask me, why would you want to take that much time to make your own clothes and grow your own food? Why would you bother? <laughs> yeah. And, and Can't it's you like. Just buy the green beans? Yeah, right? My dad's yeah. like, why don't you just buy milk? You don't need a cow. <laughs> so, uh, rather than having those kinds of conversations, then, uh, the conversations that you have are not only way beyond that, but then this other person is going to say, well, with my cow, here's what I did. Yeah. And it made, oh, it made my life so much better. And, uh, you know, uh, tips about community or, uh, uh, honeybees, uh, uh, we, we, uh, I think our first ever PDC, a uh, guest instructor was Dave Hunter, who is, I think, I, I, I'm pretty sure he is the world's leading, uh, solitary bee guy. And so we got, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to learn down that road. Um, but all these different people, and of course, each of these people are here to teach a thing, but that's not, that's whatever they're here to teach is maybe 5% of their entire permaculture life. 
and they've got so much more to share. And, and so you come and, and just if, if you're going to do nothing but attend the meals, I think you will walk away with this huge weight of knowledge that you, you, you left with that. And so I think that's why we keep having so many people like Jim and Samantha and, uh, and Jacob, uh, coming back here over and over and over again as, uh, you know, I just want to sit at that table one more time and uh, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. It's like uh, this is this is where the magic happens. And there's and it, I'm so glad that we recorded some of this event. And um, and that was kind of part of it is that we, we some of the builds we didn't get every speck of the build because Mr. Otten is only one guy. And, and it's like, so that's why I'm kind of thinking this year, if we offer this incentive for people to take video, we'll get more and it'll be a richer, richer thing. I still think though that what we do have in the movie is magnificently rich. We, there's already lots and lots and lots there. So this is, this is already going to be excellent. Um, and I'm just thinking like, wow, what if we can, what what if we can step up the event this year like like have have more instructors more people taking video more attendees and just do bigger and more more builds more more everything um i don't know i'm i'm just kind of giddy about it but at the same time there's risk involved and oh, like yeah. trying to pull it off so <laughs> okay <laughs> anybody any, did you guys happen to notice anybody else's build that you might, that you want to, you have something to say about it? Like, you know, so, this was good. That was good. The other thing was good. Um, anything that was bad, you could say anything you want. You got anything else? No, I see a lot. Did the saving horse happen in the PTJ? That happened, didn't it? What yeah. happened? That was so cool. Shaving the horse. shaving horse that, yeah. that Mike made. Mike, thank you. I've been trying to remember. Yeah, Mike was one that, I don't think that we have video had to split of it. the logs with the chainsaw. He was oh, a great cool. Yeah. That was amazing to watch that come together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mike's shaving horse is a thing of beauty and art. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's clear that this is not Mike's first shaving horse. And, and, and boy, did he do a glorious and magnificent job in building this one. We do have some video. We okay. don't, we don't have a lot of A-roll, but we'll, we're going to get Mike to make some uh, commentary on it. And, um, Andreas is going to make some plans. We are going to flesh up, but we do have some video. We do have some of it being built. And of course, we now use it a lot here because we do we do a lot of stuff with greenwood here um in fact uh the boots did prenicky day where where no one's allowed to use uh power tools and you and build a bunch of stuff and so they built a bunch of things no power tools and they use that shaving horse quite a lot nice. and so uh in fact i think we've got a new half-assed holiday just around the corner uh it's called uh log furniture day and uh, I think I think we're going to be okay. making clunky chairs to put into the kitchen, big, giant, overly heavy clunky chairs, <laughs> <laughs> which is great to make because you know the chairs that you buy at the store they design them so that they're nice and light 
so that the shipping is cheap. <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to, it's like, we don't have that problem here. We can make them as heavy as we want. We can make them <laughs> monster chairs. So, Thrones. <laughs> all right. All right. I think we're at the end of this podcast. We've been going for a long, long time. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to say the thing. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about our cool ass events, <laughs> homesteading and permaculture all the time. Hi, this is Mark. There are a lot of reasons to get angry these days, but I prefer to focus on the positive things that we each can do to make this world a better place. The book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys, is a great resource for just that. Instead of throwing my arms up in frustration at governments or big corporations, there's a list of ideas that we each can tackle to affect change. Information about this book and other resources can be found at permies.com.